you know, I didn't have any books behind me before uh, when I first uh, set up my new office. But now the books are directly behind me, so you can't actually see what they are. And they're they're purely decorative. Um, these are not books that these are all books I've read for the most part, with a couple of exceptions. Um, and I just put them there to kind of fill out the shelf. But beyond that, I literally bought books so that I could put them there. But they are some of my favorite books. Um, like, I think I see Anarchy State and Utopia on your bookshelf. Yeah, I've got quite a few here. Although. Yeah. You got to remember that I get a lot of books too. Uh-huh. Uh, as a yeah. member of Congress, they yeah. people send me books, I got to put them somewhere so they go on my shelf. Well, I don't I don't have any of those kinds of books. I have a few <laughs> books that I've purchased that are behind me that I plan to read but have not yet read. But anything that's back there is something that I actually genuinely like. Um but the the reason I had to do that is because all of my reading happens on the Kindle. Like almost all of it. So I never have for for the longest time i just haven't had like a library at the house with a bunch of old books that i used to read which always makes me feel slightly uncomfortable compared to someone like moynihan who has i i can't i countless tomes <laughs> littered throughout the house like piled piled up on the walls of the house on these shelves that he's he's bolted into the walls um it's it's wonderful and, and, and gorgeous and nice to see. Um, and I suppose I felt a little jealous. So I set up a, a small library of like 12 books, but most of the books are in the, in the cloud where they belong. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> well, for those who are just joining us, we've got Camille Foster here. Um, he started the podcast before I started it. So we're good, but Camille, how are you doing? I'm good. It is, uh, <laughs> it's good to be with you. I think, I'm trying to remember the last time we talked, and I don't know for sure, but I think it might have been. And we messaged and stuff, but I, I think the last time we talked was it during the pandemic, like the height of the pandemic. Yeah, the, the, the low point perhaps of the pandemic. Yeah, probably. I mean, okay. we've we've talked on and off over the past few years, yeah. um, and we've talked about a lot of things. But yes. you, I know that. Uh, you just had a child not too long ago. Yes, yes, Cohen and, Anthony Thoreau, the newest newest member of our family, um, and uh, complete completes my pair. My daughter is uh, Leah Lynette Emerson Foster, so they both have these these Jewish first names, and they're named after transcendentalists as well. Um, and yeah, Cohen is great. He's in wonderful health. Uh, definitely my last child, um, but. Uh, it's it's been great. It's been wonderful. Apart from the lost lack of sleep. So why would you go for those names? What was the uh, the the full name? The first, middle. <laughs> what was what was the justification or the reason for it? Yeah. Well, one, I mean, careful negotiations with my wife over over protracted periods of time. <laughs> in some cases, I think Leah actually we always knew would be uh, my daughter's name. She's named after in a very interesting way. Uh, my wife's grandmother, who she loved uh, tremendously and who passed a couple of years before Leah was born. Um, but her name, <laughs> the name Leah, is a name that Tracy's grandmother insists God gave her. And it actually stands for love in action. So it's spelled L-I-A, um, which, you know, okay. <laughs> so we, she changed her own name to Leah. 
Yeah, and no, that's beautiful. We gave that name to our daughter. And then Cohen um, is actually a little sillier in that uh, we were pretty sure we were going to name him Ian right up until about two or three days before he was born. And my wife suggested Cohen um, spelt a different way than we actually adopted. And I liked the sound of it, but then I decided it would be C-O-E-N. And for no other reason, but because I enjoy the Coen Brothers movies. And, <laughs> and so we went with Coen. Um, but they did all, they did both get four names. Um, so they're Leah Lynette Emerson Foster and Coen Anthony Thoreau Foster, because I desperately wanted to have control over the middle names, which I couldn't fully get. So I had to get this extra name, which, you know, maybe they will completely disregard, but I I don't think that's the case. I think they'll they'll like it, um, especially because I've already begun to indoctrinate both of them, um, both so, with respect to music and, of course, their their philosophical moorings and their politics. So when when forms ask for like a middle initial, what do you do if you have two middle names? I mean, I have I have four names. So does my yeah. Name. I'm Camille Anthony Tulla Foster, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just K A F. But if I'm feeling fancy, it's K A T F. So. Huh. Yeah. So you just do you usually pick the first one as your middle initial if you had to pick one? Um, no. I mean, I have a, a like my actual middle name is Anthony. My name originally was Camille Anthony Tulla. Um, Foster is um my dad's name. I call him my dad. He's my stepfather, I suppose technically. Huh. Um, and he came into my life when I was two or three. Uh, I think around the time I was ten or eleven after my sister was born. I, I got a little, I was a little frustrated that I was the only one in the house that didn't have Foster as their last name. Um, so they, they sort of surprised me and changed my name one day. And I think I, I like to think that my dad was actually very pleased that I decided to take his last name um, in that way. Uh, but yeah. So what's, uh, what's been special about fatherhood to you at this young age with your kids being young? <laughs> I mean, my kids are a little bit older Yeah, and, and I think there's something special about every age um i love the fact that my kids are now old enough where i can have very regular conversations with them as though they're like my friends yeah and and that's a special thing but when they're young it's a different sort of thing yeah well i i haven't had that experience yet although i will say that my four-year-old i'm sometimes astonished by the depth um and sophistication of the conversations that we're able to have together um and i'll, I'll maybe come back to that in a second um, but to answer the question, what I've most enjoyed about having kids in general is one discovering like how much I need these small people with very limited skills um, to begin with, no skills actually in the very very beginning. Um, it there's something about like having children that really changes you in a very fundamental sort of way. It, it taps into that deep kind of biological genetic imperative to procreate, um, and I'm I'm someone who started quite late and who wasn't quite sure that they would have kids at all. Um, so I feel very privileged to have been able to do it. Um, we weren't in fact sure that we could have any more kids um, after my daughter. Um, and my son was a bit of a very welcome, um, unexpected surprise. Um, we were actually in the process of doing like IVF and my wife was getting ready for a second or third round. Um, and it had been pretty brutal um, and in the process of just that kind of perfunctory checkup, we discovered that she was actually already pregnant. And, hmm. you know, we, we ended up with Cohen. And um, with Cohen, you know, at the four-month mark, 
the the really cool thing about very young kids is they just start to kind of come online like they first get here and it's just this blank slate like they're alive they're breathing um but they're not doing much else they don't they're not in control of their limbs they're flailing all over the place they don't really look at you their hearing and their their vision is like starting to come online and i i know a bit more about this because i've read about it subsequently but over time over the the course of weeks they start to become more aware of their surroundings to to develop a sense of kind of depth of field to finally have control over their movements and watching my son and my daughter become like these conscious entities has been just magical like my 4 month old now responds to his name or at least he when i call him specifically and say his name not just a random noise he'll look at, in my direction and now he'll see me from across the room and his eyes will follow me and I'll leave the room and he'll kind of cry you know for the first three or three and a half months or so almost four months you're doing this thing you love them intensely but they're barely smiling at you you know they, they have no idea who you are um, and you would do anything for them um so to start getting just these little subtle indications that oh you're my person and they smile at you and it's not just gas um is like really incredible so yeah it's that's that's been the best part um so far but the the best piece of advice that i've gotten about fatherhood i think is um well there's two parts one is just have empathy is key try to imagine what's happening in their small brains as you're rearing them um which is important because they're still developing um but two is just try to be in the moment and really enjoy like every kind of epoch in their development don't rush it don't waste a bunch of time thinking about how cool it'll be when she's 13 like focus on the fact that she's four and a half now and she's learning to read and there's something incredible about that cuz you just can't get that time back once it's gone and it's already the case that my daughter has been you know several distinct humans over the course right. of her short lifetime um and my son now i think is entering kind of that first phase of like really being himself and discovering who he is and i'm i want to be i want to be helpful i want to shepherd it along um and i'm i'm grateful to both of them for helping me get a sense of what's important in life and in in all of the other areas of my life actually professionally and you know personally in terms of the kind of recreation i choose there's something very clarifying about being leon cohen's dad um so yeah yeah absolutely and i would often look at my kids and still do um you know tucking them in at night or walking into my child's bedroom and just looking at her sleeping like my youngest now and thinking about the fact that this person exists now and there will be a different person in a sense a few years yeah. from now yeah like like they they change and you're not going to get this person back so you yeah. have to you have to appreciate the time you have with with the person they are at that moment um because kids are going to change and then they'll be adults and um it's it's in some ways a very different person yeah Yeah. So so you're very much an individualist and I've always wanted to talk to you about um race because mm-hmm. you have said many times and I've heard you talk about it that you don't identify as black. Mhm. And 
bringing it up with you is almost a little bit odd because in the sense by bringing it up, I'm identifying something, right? I'm saying something about you. So can you tell me a little more about it though so that people at home can understand your perspective on this? Because I sure. think it's an important perspective. Um, sometimes it's a little bit confusing to people, uh, especially in this world we live in today where a lot of times – race has become more and more prominent. There was a there was a period in history where I think the idea was look, we should not uh see race as the most important thing. What matters is the people themselves, the individuals. But I feel like increasingly it's become like no, we have to see race. And that's that's at least the the thing that's presented to us by a lot of the media and a lot of uh you know politicians and others, people in yeah. culture. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, and I'm, I don't remember where it charted, but, you know, we're both children of the 80s. Um, and as such, I, I can distinctly remember, like, Michael Jackson releasing the song Black and White. It doesn't matter if you're black or white is the hook for anyone who doesn't know. Before before he was a pariah, um, he, he was the king of pop and we all loved him and, and couldn't imagine that he would ever do anything to hurt children. And, you know, debatable whether or not that's even true. But let's not go there right now. Uh, um, you know, I, I suppose I was, I was, I grew up with particular ideas about race and a particular perception of, you know, the, the kind of Kingian paradigm, um, that at some point, you know, we, we all adopted a position where we, we wanted to live in a world where the white girl and the black girl were playing together and enjoying one another and that we weren't judging people, by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I, I thought for a good portion of my life that we pretty definitively won that argument and <laughs> were kind of ushering in um, an epoch like that. And you're right. Somewhere along the line, something seems to have shifted. Um, there is a pretty profound disagreement about the importance of race, um, the, the kind of corporality of race, and the degree to which we ought to regard one another first and foremost with respect to race. And, you know, since we began by talking about our kids, um, there's something that happened in February that I think kind of puts a lot of this stuff into perspective. Um, I took my daughter to her first day of school at a new school in February and February is black history month. And as such, there was a display that had been kind of put out in the school, some things that were on the wall and a couple of books and, you know, it's my first day there. Um, I see this stuff and I'm looking at it on our way to class. And I notice one book that is facing outwards that says the title of the book was Hey, Black Child. And, you know, I'm thinking about my daughter, Leah, who, as I told you, you know, is a very she's a she's a she's a person who's discovering herself, who has particular passions and interests. Leah loves music. And she and I both have a love of astronomy she is passionate and outgoing. She's boundlessly curious. One of the coolest things that's ever happened in our conversations is uh, we were talking once about um, like infinity. Actually, she actually out of nowhere, like just kind of asked a question about infinity. And she says, daddy is infinity invisible, which, you know, my four-year-old is, is wrestling with this very sophisticated idea and she's trying to understand like how it all works. And it wasn't, you know, a totally random question. We went further and talked about, well, is infinity everywhere? 
which again, these are sophisticated ideas. And taking my daughter back to her classroom, thinking about this book, Hey Black Child, I kept asking myself, you know, are the people that I'm going to be entrusting my child to today, like capable of seeing Leah Lynette, the individual, seeing her for all of her kind of boundless potential and her particular interests? Or do they imagine that they're receiving a black girl who they have kind of a responsibility to to cultivate a sense of racial awareness in, that they're kind of going to put their baggage on her with respect to what their expectations are uh, with respect to race and what they presume her life experience is? Will they tell her that she's, she's disadvantaged in some respect or that um, her classmates are fundamentally privileged? Is that the sort of thing that might go on in this classroom? And, you know, I take her back to the classroom and I have to pull someone aside and I tell them explicitly, I want you to know that my daughter is Leah. She's not a black girl. She is singular. And it's imperative that I know that you kind of respect that, that you are willing to to have particular regard for her dignity as an individual. And I think in a very real sense, that is the the fundamental the kind of beating heart of my own approach to like conversations about race, it can be absolutely true um, that there are in fact racists in the world, that there are people who, that there, that we do have this, even if very crude um, kind of system of categorizing one another with respect to the color of our skins and kind of putting people in particular buckets and it's probably even true that most Americans imagine themselves as members of racial groups, whether in very hard and particular ways um, or in a kind of generic way that they haven't really interrogated. Um, but I've interrogated the idea and I know quite a bit about what race is um, and what it isn't, um, why we have these particular ideas. And I've decided that I just don't have any use for it. It is a, it's a, Race tribalism is a kind of fetishism that I'm I'm not remotely interested in. And when I encounter it uh, and someone is kind of putting their presumptions about who or what I ought to be um, on me, <laughs> projecting those things on me on account of my appearance, um, I, I mean, it's just it's it can be anywhere from annoying to, you know, something that causes uh, a kind of outrage. Um I am a particular person with particular interests. I, I, I insist on the dignity of my own identity and I refuse to be defined by a ridiculous system of human classification that was codified by slavers and that most people accept uncritically. <laughs> your, your inability, let's say, not yours in particular, Justin, just in general, anyone, anyone else, um, but your inability to to actually interrogate this this particular endowment, this notion that we all are members of particular racial groups, to think about it critically and decide whether or not it's something that's actually for you, um, is not my limitation. And I'm fortunate to live at a time where a lot of the obstacles that actually existed, like explicitly racist legal structures, as opposed to kind of this notion of kind of systemic racism or something. Um, those things don't really exist at this point. Um, we get to live in the world that people like Martin Luther King and many, many others of all races and backgrounds helped to create for us. And I think that's a, a wonderful privilege. 
and I'm grateful for it. So I'm going to live in it to the fullest extent possible. And for me, part of that is disregarding the preposterous categories. So when there's a situation like uh, some kind of police action that is um, improper, police officer shoots someone, kills someone, and that person is identified as a black person, and it's said this is, uh, you know, another example of racist policing. Does that upset you that it's described that way, or is it possible in your mind that there was race involved as part of the justification or or the excuse for why it happened, or that there is something that's maybe um, systemic? Are those things that you you perceive as possible, even if you yourself don't uh, identify as black and don't like to see the world in that way, isn't it true that other people might see the world that way? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, But but to begin, I mean, I think my, my perspective is that in general, race often obscures far more than it clarifies. And in particular, with respect to police involved shootings, there are lots of things that we know about policing and police involved shootings that is that are probably worth like considering, um, you know, as libertarians, like we're people who've advocated for criminal justice reform for a very long time. We don't want anyone to be needlessly murdered by members of law enforcement. And we know that if someone is killed in an interaction with law enforcement, whether they were armed or not, there needs to be a thorough transparent investigation so that we can understand exactly what happened there so that we can ensure that to the extent someone is killed that it was just and if it was not just then these per- this person needs to be prosecuted and furthermore we also need to figure out what happened so we can try to avoid this sort of thing happening again in the in the future if that's the baseline then we start to have a different sort of conversation about any individual police shooting um, and far too often what I see is um, a, presupp- a presupposition about police shootings when a person who identifies as black or who would be identified as black identified as black is involved. Um, and the presupposition tends to be, oh, look, here's another one um, that, you know, uh, George Floyd is um, Breonna Taylor is Tamir Rice, and that all of these situations are identical to one another, and they fit a perfect narrative. When in fact, these situations are distinct. They happen at different times, they involve different people, they involve different circumstances. And if we're actually going to understand what happened in those circumstances, I think it's imperative that we're actually thoughtfully investigating what happened and not, you know, bringing our our supposition to bear every single time we find something like this, it seems to fit a pattern. Um, and then disregarding, in many respects, the, the vast number of other kinds of persons who have encounters with law enforcement that end in a tragic way and that don't get nearly the sort of attention that they deserve. Um, and even when there is like obvious signs of wrongdoing um, going on, we're not doing much of anything to really extract learning from those circumstances so that we can save people's lives and create a better and safer um society for ourselves and to, to try to arrive at like better policing procedures. So it's not so much that it makes me, it makes me mad that someone considers it racist. Um, I think that it's the, 
it's the incuriosity that's being cultivated around these issues and the lack of the kind of pretended um, veneer of sophistication that's attached to like journalism that is race obsessed related to policing um, that oftentimes just relate just results in more of the same kind of coverage, more of the same kind of headlines where you lead with the person's race. Um, and it's not obvious to me that it, it leads to policy reforms in any sort of meaningful sense um, that are particularly effective um, or that it does anything but kind of inflame tensions. Um, I think we could make a great deal more progress on issues like police involved shootings and criminal justice reform broadly and a universe of other issues if we were actually interested in talking about those things in really sophisticated ways um, as opposed to allowing ourselves to kind of get caught in the the sinkhole that is like all things identity politics. Right. I do think that it's unfortunate that a lot of times race does obscure some of the bigger issues out there that are involved in police misconduct. Um, There are broader issues and that's not to say that um, at times there aren't racist actions. I think there definitely are. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but as someone who cares deeply about civil liberties and criminal justice reform and a lot of issues related to our individual rights, I think that sometimes you're right that the topic of race gets in the way of broader issues that are happening out there that need to be addressed. And, um, and we never end up getting to a lot of those issues like you wouldn't believe what it's like in congress where i'm trying to get to the bottom of things like uh police misconduct and the the same people who are complaining about um racism and saying it's wrong are not doing enough to actually address the underlying problems that are that are out there and uh and so it is it is very disheartening yeah i mean i think we've reached a point where particular the the imperative to utter particular phrases to frame things in particular ways is far more urgent and far more salient in the minds of many lawmakers and even many Americans than is making material progress on these issues. And I think that's a, a really kind of sad state of affairs. I don't know that many people would admit that that's true, but our actions certainly seem to suggest that. Um, for all of the talk, for the for all of the kneeling in the rotunda in Congress um, that took place in the summer of 2020, um, the, the absence of any kind of material federal legislation um, related to these issues, um, I think, is pretty startling, should be a startling wake-up call for anyone who thinks that these people are serious about these issues. 100%. And the, and I think the contamination of our discourse with all of this um, kind of language about equity and racial justice and even, you know, the, the kind of uh, appropriation of phrases like white supremacy and racist from kind of their more traditional... Um, usage in polite society and in politics broadly um, to these kind of broader, all-encompassing, sweeping concepts um, that are kind of deployed to refer to both the the general kind of milieu that we all exist in, as well as kind of malevolent intentions inside of people's heart. That practice, I don't think, has really helped to elevate 
um, kind of the seriousness of our, of our evaluation of issues. And I see a lot of kind of cash for funkers esque, like ridiculous posturing around a lot of issues related to race. Um, and I don't see a lot of kind of tangible results. Uh, and I think that that, that is, it's, it's sad. It's kind of heartbreaking. I think there's a desperate need for education reform. There's a desperate need for us to better understand um, poverty and remedies to poverty. Uh, but the way that we're talking about those things um, suggests that we're more interested in, in kind of the theater of the discourse than we are actually finding and implementing meaningful solutions that improve the quality of people's lives. And that honestly reflect the, 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 the reality that we see around us. Yeah, and I I saw that theater firsthand in Congress, and you're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, the kneeling and all that, and yet at the same time, I was offering substantive policy changes, and not a single thing passed. This is what a lot of people at home, I think, never realized, because the issue sort of went away over time. People stopped mm-hmm. talking about it. But with all the discussion about the brutal killing of George Floyd – and all of the protests and everything else, at the end of the day, Congress didn't pass one thing that was of substantive significance. Right. Not a single thing. Yeah. They did Now, Republicans offered some stuff. Democrats offered some stuff. But at the end of the day, if they really wanted to get it done, they could have gotten it done, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. There were issues like um, the qualified immunity legislation I introduced. Um, there are other issues related to our drug laws that are never addressed. And I've, I've pointed out many times, if you want to address police misconduct, you have to address what's being policed. And this is constantly ignored. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to have police stop everyone for, uh, this little thing or that little thing, or they're, they've got, you know, um, uh, an air freshener hanging from their (laughs) mirror or whatever, you're going to have more encounters with police that end up in very deadly situations. Yeah. And none of these things seem to get addressed. It's like, it's always just trying to deal with the symptoms. And then so much of it is theatrical. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. uh, they, they're, they say, Oh, well, we'll give some guidance to police, um, you know, to the police, uh, departments about how to, how to handle arrests instead of actually dealing with the, the issues. Like what are they arresting people for? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, in, in the context of these conversations, the thing that, that if someone is listening, who's kind of skeptical of my perspective on this, that they're thinking about is, well, Camille, it's, it's the racial disparities. Like that's what you have to take into, take into consideration. The fact that blacks are, you know, overrepresented relative to their share of the population and police shooting statistics. And I think there's a lot of ways that I could respond to that. Um, but I'll I'll take a different route and I'll be a little more provocative and say that I don't actually care about disparities. Like, I really don't. I don't care about racial disparities in particular, unless they are the result of like, deliberate kind of racist laws. I don't actually care about disparities more than I care about deprivation. And I think that for the most part, for most of the places where we talk about disparities in educational attainment and sort of economic levels of economic success, um, that in general, from a policy standpoint, and even from a kind of 
an analytical, just kind of social investigatory standpoint, whether or not we can understand these phenomena better, phenomena better, we're we're better able to understand and address these problems if we look at them in ways that are are neutral with respect to race. Like education is a very difficult nut to crack in terms of what makes a school good and what makes a school unsuccessful and what's wrong in a particular circumstance. Um, and I'm not terribly interested in the disparities between kids who look different. I am specifically interested in the disparities between kids who are being successful in particular academic environments and kids who aren't being successful in academic environments and whether those kids are black or white or anything else is of no consequence to me. Like one more kid being trapped in a failing school is one more kid too many. And I don't care whether that school is in Baltimore County or in Appalachia. Like it, It's important and it matters. And the fact that more of those kids don't have choices with respect to the schools that they can attend should be a, a paramount of paramount concern. And I think that that putting our concern about racial disparities in front of our concern about material deprivations um, is, is abominable and is something that we really ought to be um, taking, taking stock of. Uh, I think there's something very, very uh, lamentable about that state of affairs. So you're a libertarian. How did you get to the, to the point of being a libertarian or have you, <laughs> Have you been a libertarian your whole life? Like, do you feel like when you were a kid, were you were you a libertarian as a kid, or no? No, I think I'm. I think I've always been um, someone who who kind of cut their own path. Uh, but I mean, from terms of like politics and uh, personal philosophy, I'd say that I was a pretty conventional Democrat in so much as I had any ideas about politics for much of my young life. Um, I think at some point in college, I got a hold of first Bastiat's The Law, and like that was like a bit of a shock to the system. And I still, I still remember getting this like flimsy little book and opening it to the first, <laughs> and the first lines were all in caps: "The law perverted and the police powers of the state perverted along with it." It was like it was revolutionary stuff. I've yeah. never encountered anything like that. I, I used to hand that out in my office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had free copies. Anyone who came to my congressional office could yeah. get a free copy of of the law. I mean, some of that probably has to be in like the right place to receive that, but it worked <laughs> for me. Like yeah. it worked. And shortly after encountering Bastia, I got a copy of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom, and like that book in particular, that was the thing that made it obvious to me that oh, wow, there's there's something here and this is probably who you are. And the two specific things that leapt out at me that I or, or that I learned from the book, um, which may have both been in like the forward um, or perhaps even a, a rewritten introduction was one is this notion that freedom is a rare and delicate plant and that most people throughout most of history have been subjugated. I'd never been confronted with that absolute incontrovertible fact before. And it's somewhat embarrassing for me to acknowledge that, you know, as a second year undergraduate, I'd never really thought about that. Um, but being confronted with it was like a really profound moment for me. And the second was um, Milton revisiting Kennedy's um, speech uh, where he talks about um, 
where he says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And Milton turns that on its head and suggests that neither, neither one of these things, what, you, what your country can do for you or what you can do for your country, are consistent with the ideals of a free person in a free society. And again, for me, this was kind of like, whoa, you know, <laughs> I've heard this phrase, I've heard this, 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 this kind of thing all my life. And I'd never really thought about what the implications of it were that government is either that I'm either, you know, supplicant who's taking something from the state or that I'm sacrificing on behalf of the state. When, as Milton properly put it, the real question in a free society is what can we do through government to enable all of us to pursue our several goals? Um, And I think, you know, having that grounding and then going on to finish my degrees, I had a degree in government and one in economics um, and getting a really sophisticated understanding of how markets work, why they're important and essential um, was, I suppose that's, that's the philosophical mooring that I found myself in. And I can thank like Mises and Hayek as well. Um, Rothbard was certainly influential. Um, although I, I sometimes describe myself as being living somewhere between Rothbardistan and Nozickville. Um, and, and these days it might even be a little more towards Nozickville than Rothbardistan. Um, but yeah. Well, speaking of that, I wanted to talk to you about the Libertarian Party. Oh yeah, uh, because you know, I mean that 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 will all come up. Um, I've, I've successfully avoided talking about this <laughs> for so, a long time, but I'm actually happy to get into it with you. So, a few questions. First, do you participate in uh, politics like that? Are you a member of a political party? I I don't believe I am. I have in the past registered to be a Republican or Democrat so that I could vote in primaries. Um, And I have been involved in campaigns in the past. I worked on Ron Paul's campaign, gave him a lot of money in the past, Uh, flew out to New Hampshire actually, and and stomped for him uh, sometime, sometime back um, or stomped for him. Um, And I have a lot of great memories related to that. But in terms of kind of, LP politics in particular, you know, I've been in media for much of the last 10 years. And as such, I've had an opportunity to, you know, meet a lot of candidates and advocate for candidates in those, in those contexts. And I've pretty uniformly like supported like the libertarian presidential candidate. Uh, But I've never been uh, an official member of the party, although I've had a friendly relationship with the party and have spoken at party events in the past. Um, And, have known party leadership throughout the years and had some conversations with them uh, in public and private, uh, including uh, some of the folks involved with the the kind of new regime of the, of the LP to use the word that I know is a little afraid. (laughs) Yeah. So when I got involved with the libertarian party, people were like, Oh, you don't know what you're getting into. Uh, People, people were warning me. um, But on the other hand, I'd come from, Republican politics, uh-huh. and I think people wouldn't believe the things I saw in Republican politics. <laughs> you know, I went to quite a few state conventions oh, yeah. uh, as a Republican, and there was some wild stuff there. So, I mean, a- as I went around and started attending Libertarian Party conventions, I thought actually this is pretty 
normal stuff. This is not like that weird compared to what I was experiencing in the Republican Party. <laughs> um, but look, the Libertarian Party is a small party. Mm-hmm. So any kind of um, drama gets blown up in a big way and people people know each other. You know, in Republican politics, what happens is the party is so big, and it's true in Democratic politics as well, the party is so big that you don't really have these ongoing feuds with like one person or two people and then it has like a whole effect on the entire party. It just it, – it doesn't – your, your, your petty little fights or whatever don't add up to much because there's just – it's a big party. It gets drowned out by the rest of the party. But in libertarian politics, everything becomes a big deal. So, so what's going on from your perspective? Just watching it from the outside, you know, there was a recent um, takeover. I mean, they they've called it a takeover themselves, mm-hmm. where um, the Mises Caucus, which is viewed largely as what might be termed right libertarians, have taken over the national party from people who they at least presented as left libertarians. I think it's a mix of people, um, but that's how they view it as uh, essentially a right libertarian takeover of the party from left libertarians. For those who are not familiar with libertarian politics within the libertarian party, we've got like the full spectrum. Basically we've got people on the left. We've got people on the right. Um, It's, it's different from the other two parties, at least the two major parties or old parties, in that those parties are generally, you know, center right or center left. The Libertarian Party really has people on the left and the right, and they're all in mm-hmm. one party. Um, but what's your take on on what sort of, what happened? Um, what the future holds? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, where do we yeah. go from here? And, you know, we can talk about all these things and more, but and I'd love to know, like, whether you think the Libertarian Party is the place to be for libertarians versus, say, running as a Republican or a Democrat. But let's talk about the party itself first and, and what what you saw, at least, from your perspective in the media. Yeah, well, I suppose we have to rewind the tape a little bit um, because I do think that for a while there, you know, when Gary Johnson, for example, was the standard bearer of the party and, you know, had his... I think in an important way, like successful runs uh, for president during which he really did, you know, break new ground for a third party in the United States. Um, And when the Libertarian Party was establishing itself and creating this very unique circumstance where it's the only other party that actually has ballot access across the country. This is a very unique um, sort of property in terms of the American political landscape, in terms of that sort of machinery. And I think for a while there, the party was very much trying to appeal to kind of a mainstream libertarian sensibility. Limit You like limited government, like actually like it, like not just in a kind of cliche name, name lip service kind of way that you might get from uh, conservatives. You actually like... Um, kind of, and are committed to the kind of uh, intellectual and social freedoms that people on the left are supposed to represent. But, you know, for so long, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama couldn't bring themselves to publicly endorse gay marriage. Libertarians have been there for a very long time. Like, this is probably the place for you. 
um, and making good arguments, good principled arguments on important issues and essentially leading the way on issues like gay marriage and criminal justice reform. I think the libertarians in general deserve a great deal of credit for that sort of thing. Places like Cato and Reason and even Mises deserve a great deal of credit for that sort of thing. Um, and the party deserves a lot of credit for that sort of thing. I think it's been an important tool for helping to advance those causes. Um, but somewhere in the last couple of years um, before the takeover, I think there'd been a really concerted effort to try to do two things. One was to kind of purge the party of people who were deemed bad and naughty um, or retrograde or dangerous to spend a great deal of time, I think, addressing what are in some cases kind of fringe um, fringe uh, elements of the party, but in other cases are just sort of people who are affiliated with say like Mises, for example, which, you know, I've, it's certainly the case that there's some questionable history with respect to some, to some things and some people um, affiliated with uh, Mises. But on the whole, I think Mises has been like a resource that has been very valuable to people like me who quote unquote self-radicalized and benefited from being able to download content from their publications and to read and explore ideas there. And, yeah, and, and to be clear, so people at, at home understand, you mean the Mises Institute, right? Yes, the Mises Institute. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, to the extent that there have been concerns about particular things in the past, then having sophisticated conversations about that is one thing. I think what I saw that I found a bit disturbing at the time was a real kind of crusade to label and brand a, a whole swath of people as racist, again, to, to kind of bring this word back in. And in the summer of 2020, uh, as the most recent presidential campaign was getting underway, there was a very deliberate effort to embrace um, a lot of the nomenclature that had become very popular on the left, like rebranding the party and having the party uh, make these proclamations and the party standard bearer at the time make proclamations about how it's not enough to be not racist. You must be anti-racist, which struck me as both crass, insincere. And I actually, I said both. I'm going to give a third thing as well. Um, but very unoriginal. Um, it's very weird for the Libertarian Party to be in the position of prescribing particular ideological perspectives that one must embrace. Um, that wasn't the sort of thing that the party was doing before. And based on my experience and my conversations with the leadership at that time, um, it was something that was being done specifically because it was deemed to be kind of politically expedient and not something that was being done for principle's sake. And the combination of those two things, I think, created a kind of perfect sort of storm and created conditions for a really kind of silly, um, ugly, needless schism within the party. And I think created a, a real desire on the part of some people to turn the party in a different sort of direction. And a lot of the same sort of I think reactionary impulses that have played out in the broader political landscape with respect to people on the right, seeing certain kinds of quote unquote woke excesses on the left, deciding, well, what we need is to ban X books, to ban particular ideas, to, to ensure that these things can't 
kind of find their way into the party, the kind of hard right correction um, that the party seems to be taking now where the party is more interested in catering to people who are perhaps a little more like me, like who would describe themselves as anarchists. Um, I think I understand what they're trying to do and what they'd like to accomplish. Um, but I don't know that becoming a party that is primarily interested, it seems, in you know promoting, say, like a, a fundamental split between the left and the right in America so that there could be a separation as a remedy to a lot of the political division that exists in the country today. I suppose one could make that argument. But it seems like the opportunity for a party that has ballot access across all 50 states in a country where people are exceedingly dissatisfied with politics as usual and Democrats and Republicans in particular, where Donald Trump and Joe Biden couldn't be more hated, fielding candidates that have the capacity to appeal to a broader kind of mainstream audience who may not yet be ready for the kind of world that Rothbard or even Nozick might kind of describe, may not be ready for exactly what I would want with respect to, you know, the government, the government's least governs best. And at some point, you know, when men are ready for it, you get no government at all. They may not be ready for that, but they might be ready for something, something akin to what, say, like a Gary Johnson was able to offer to mainstream voters or what you were able to offer to fairly mainstream voters that gave them a very clear sense of like libertarian sensibilities, um, but in a very approachable way. Um, I think there's a particular opportunity there. And I think it's one that, you know, it's not going to appeal to some people, um, but that I can certainly see the pragmatic advantage in trying to make progress in American politics in that way and trying to be a force in American politics in that way. Um, and I think you can do that while at the same time allowing people to essentially promote um, and to advocate for some of the more kind of stridently libertarian um, anarcho-capitalist perspectives that, quite frankly, are are more... <laughs> are more consistent with my own values. Um, I'm someone who ultimately I'd love to see the department of education abolished. I don't believe in public schools at all. Um, that said, I am perfectly happy to advocate for charter schools and backpack funding because those are obviously incremental improvements on the, on the status quo. And quite frankly, we live, we're privileged to live in a country where we have these really extraordinary lives and where there has been this moral arc bending towards justice on any number of important issues. And we didn't arrive there because we always took the most radical route. Um, we've arrived there because we like had to bring people along with us. We made incremental pragmatic um, uh, progress towards particular things. And my suspicion is that a more libertarian America isn't one that's going to be brought about by a radical, um, memefied revolution where, you know, you're trolling your adversaries or kind of outraging people on Twitter by saying incendiary things after a school shooting takes place. Um, it's going to be something that requires us to be sophisticated 
to lead with empathy and principle and to demonstrate and to meet people where they are, I think is perhaps the phrase that is most important to keep in mind here. Um, and um, I think, unfortunately, that we're kind of missing an opportunity to do that with the the turn that the party seems to be taking. Um, but equally, unfortunately, I think in some respects, the condemnations of the people who are involved with the Mises caucus as, you know, stridently racist um, or monstrous, even I think a lot of the rather disingenuous um, hand-wringing about like the changing of language in the platform, like pivoting away from the kind of wokeification of the platform towards more neutral language that doesn't embrace the race tribalism of the Black Lives Matter kind of contingent and is more interested in an individualist approach to equality under the law. Like I'm perfectly fine with that. I, I can say with confidence that there isn't anything remotely racist about it. And casting aspersions like that in the way that I've seen certain people do um, is, is contemptible. Um, and to the extent, you know, the current circumstance is a bit of a mess and there are concerns um, I'm willing to acknowledge that, but you don't get there absent the, again, rather crass, um, self-aggrandizing, um, and I think deeply unserious um, attempt to kind of co-opt the, the kind of messaging of the Black Lives Matter movement that really took place in, in 2020. I thought it was a, a misstep at the time, and I said as much, um, and I think it is it has produced precisely the fruit you would have expected. I mean, the, the thing about it is imagine like adopting language that is literally identical to the language that you will find any other place in what universe is who's someone who's trying to build a movement or sell product, like actually going to do that as a, as a strategy and think it will work. Like, no, we talk just like you. We're anti-racist too. Seriously. Like that's what you have to offer. I think it's pathetic. Yeah. I've been critical of the party and its strategy in the past. I do worry, like you do, that the party is headed towards something of like um, a de-wokeification or owning the wokes. Mm -hmm. And that there is some sense in which that is its own form of wokeism. Like it's, sure. it's some kind of virtue signaling of a different sort. I think that's of, right. like of where you where you stand, and I'm one who has defended um, people in the Mises Caucus because they have been called things like racist and fascist and mm -hmm. and all sorts of things yep. without without evidence without okay. evidence. And that's not to say I've always said, of course, any movement has some people with yeah. characteristics that are negative. You're going to find someone. In the Mises Caucus, who's who's like that? You're going to find someone who's racist or fascist or whatever. You're going to also find someone like that in the Democratic Party. You're going to find someone like that in the Republican Party. You're going to find someone like that throughout the world. So you, you can't say that there are no people like that. But to generalize and say this is a group of people like that I think is completely wrong. Most of the people that I've seen coming into the party recently, um, which is a lot of Mises Caucus people, they're just young people who are energized. They yeah. want to participate in the process, and they want to change things for the better. 
You know, they, yeah. they don't like the way things have been going. Now, that doesn't mean that the strategy of the Mises caucus and the new leadership can't be wrong. They can still be wrong about their overall strategy. But um, but I don't think the rank-and-file members who are coming in um, are, are bad-natured or trying to hurt people or anything like that. I think that they are um, mostly good, young libertarians who many of them want to learn more about libertarianism. That's why they're joining. Mm-hmm. But I want to take you back because you know I, I know you brought up um, Jorgensen at least indirectly. I don't know if you mentioned her name, but the... I didn't. I didn't mention. <laughs> and honestly, I don't. I don't blame her in particular for. Yeah, because I think yeah. I first. I don't know that she runs her social media. That's not to say like there's yeah. not responsibility there if your if your sure. name's on the on the handle. Um, but they have staff, and there are other people involved when decisions like that are made. Yeah, uh, for presidential candidates, but and I'll uh, say explicitly, I mean, I'm not, unless I'm not I was, yeah, unless yeah. I was running because I handle all my social media. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's, nobody's touching my Twitter account except me. But, yeah. um, but I want to go back because don't you think the problem starts more with Bill Weld? And and I say this with yeah, re- res- I don't know Bill Weld personally. Um, you know, he's, he's probably a nice guy. I don't, I don't know him personally, mm-hmm. but I do think that he was someone who was brought into the party. I, I think most people did not have real issues with Gary Johnson, including people who are just, who describe themselves as right libertarians. Um, they saw that they saw him as a worthy candidate, even if he, they weren't, he wasn't their favorite candidate. Yeah. Uh, but I do think people had problems with Bill Weld. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because Bill Weld was a, a former Republican. There are all sorts of people who came into the party who are former Republicans or former Democrats. That's not the issue. It's that Bill Weld did not strike people as being particularly libertarian. And he's on the campaign trail and he's talking glowingly about Hillary Clinton. And I think that drove people crazy. And and in some respects, I relate to that. Yeah, uh, you know, I was very frustrated when I was watching that campaign, and Bill Weld is out there saying um, how great Hillary Clinton is, and she's, you know, she could be, uh, she'd be a worth a worthy president, unlike Donald Trump. I didn't think either one was uh, worthy as a presidential um, nominee or as president, but. Yeah. But look, if I'm the Libertarian Party candidate for anything, I'm not saying good things about Hillary Clinton. I mean, for multiple reasons. Even <laughs> even if you, even if you liked her, which I don't, like she's like the opposite of me. Yeah. But like, but yeah. but um, even if Bill Weld liked her for some reason, wouldn't you keep your mouth shut? Yeah. No, I mean, this, that's you. You're offering an important refinement on, or at least it's it's useful in that it 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 gives me an opportunity to offer a refinement on my earlier remarks. I'm I'm interested in moderation but it needs to be within the sphere of what is like respectable among libertarians. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like I don't, I don't want an LP that is catering to its left flank or its right flank. I think in that respect, we could kind of learn something from the mainstream parties. Like the goal is to come up with a candidate that everyone who is generally on board with our program can be supportive of. And that probably means that you're not drafting the guy who is, almost kind of sort of not really like 
down with the cause. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it my issue with really have like kind of a sophisticated appreciation for our perspectives on things. He he he, he struck he, me. He yeah. struck me as a person who's just a stand-in. Like, okay, we need someone who fits the the type of you know professional former governor. Like, we need someone who fits this profile. So, oh, here's a guy who will do it. Let's just put him in. Mm-hmm. There. That that's how it struck me, and and that is something I think the party does not accept. Whereas Gary Johnson himself, I think people were accepting him of, of him, even if they even if they didn't agree with him on everything. I think most people said, okay, he's he is a uh, at least a worthy candidate for sure. the Libertarian Party. Sure, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a fair, a very fair point, and I think that's certainly part of the part of the story. Um, and and my hope, look, I, and I I want to also agree with something else he said. Just there's a tremendous amount of energy that's being brought into the party by the Mises Caucus. There are a lot of younger people who are very energized by, in some cases, a lot of the culture war conflict that's taking place. But honestly, like efforts to own the the wokesters on the left, like it just strikes me that 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 isn't progress. There's a sense in which you can make waves that way. You can even create some excitement and perhaps derive energy from that sort of um, cheap, like high calorie um, candy. Um, but I think that the party probably ought to be trying to do something more substantive than that. The party, as I suggested earlier, has been instrumental in helping to improve the quality of our political discourse and helping to move both of the two major parties in this country, major in the sense that they've had electoral success in the past, not in the sense that they have sort of philosophical heft, but moving them in a more libertarian direction. That is literally true. Um, I think even the the kind of anti-war pivot that the part that the Republican Party has made in large part because of Donald Trump is something that was presaged by Ron Paul and by you um, and by others who were involved in the conservative movement, but also by libertarians. Um, like That's the kind of influence that we can have. And I think it's harder to have that kind of influence if we're more interested in being provocateurs than we are in being strategic and pragmatic. And I just think that that is really, really important. Um, it's possible that this new approach might win you a couple of local races. Um, but I do think that the particular acts, the particular virtue of the LP might be the particular act, virtue and the particular opportunity might be to have a real kind of presence and a material impact in like our national politics. Um, and I think doing that successfully might benefit from a little more kind of depth and sophistication and from a little, and, and it might be impaired by trying too hard for like the shock and awe. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I think that it is a futile strategy to try to get 100% of 5% of the population. <laughs> like, like what they're, I, I think what they're going for is there's 5% of the population out there who we can get, let's get a hundred percent of them. Yeah. And you might get to 5% of the vote, but you're kind of stuck. Yeah. And, and the way I look at it is 
there's maybe 50, 60 percent of the population that are like, I don't really like the Republicans and I don't really like the Democrats. And we can bring those people in. And these people are not going to be, you know, Mises or Rothbard or Hayek, even libertarians. You know, they're not they're not going to be like some of us, but they agree with us more than they agree with the Democrats and the Republicans. And as far as I'm concerned, when you're talking about political parties, if you want to win elections, you've got to get enough of the people to support your candidates. There's, there's no getting around it. And I don't think there's any time in the near future that we're getting enough people to support um, like anarcho-capitalism or, or something like that. It's not, it's not going to happen in the next, I mean, it, you, you it, already have the anarcho-capitalist vote locked up. They don't have a right. choice. You know, either right. they won't show up at all, which is very likely actually. Um, or if they do show up, they're going to vote for your candidate. Like that's yeah, the, there's already they're already here. No sense to try to cater to them in particular. Don't cater to me. I, I I prefer to be the most extreme person in the room. Honestly, like that is my strong preference. Yeah. So so what do you think? There's been this strategy, and I don't know if if you've followed it enough, but there's been a heavy emphasis within the new leadership on this idea of a national divorce. There's a heavy emphasis on what's essentially secession language. You know, we yeah. need to secede from each other. Um, what's your take on that? It, from my perspective, you're not going to grow the party that way because, um, like, people who want to get involved, especially in federal politics, are not thinking generally. Well, let's you know, let's divide up the country. Yeah. And and the other thing is, um, secession isn't quite like. As as obvious in terms of how it breaks out as people might think. Like, first of all, states and cities can be very – like, there can be rural parts of a state and right. urban parts of a state that are very different. Um, within a state, you'll have huge disparities. And people may be surprised to find that they uh, break down into these smaller units and the smaller units are more oppressive than, than what they had before. So – you know, like decentralization, I like to say, is a tool for protecting individual rights, but it is not the end itself. Right. And and unfortunately, I think that increasingly people are thinking of secession or decentralization. Um, at least that's their form. Of, that's their view of decentralization, that it means secession. I, I think that they're not necessarily the same thing, but they view secession as as the I guess the pure form of decentralization and. I get the sense that a lot of people are viewing it as an end in itself that, you know, we should be allowed to have whatever communities we want. And, um, and the smallest unit obviously is the individual individual should be able to secede. But look, we, we're human beings. We're social creatures. We live in society. We're going to form organizations with other people. Yeah. Like no matter what we do, like that's going to happen. So, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is protect individual rights, and we have to accept as a given that there will be units of governance, whether you want to call it a federal government, state government, a county government, or whatever you want to call it. There's going to be units of gover- governance. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just – I just don't know where we go with this secessionist rhetoric, you know, national divorce, and 
um, and how that plays in people's minds who might be with us on individual rights, but then they hear this and they think, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for protecting my rights. I'm not necessarily looking for, hey, I want you know my city to be its own independent state or whatever. I mean, I'm again, I'm all for aiming for ambitious, you know, uh, uh, principled goals. But my goal, as you, uh, I think, were indicating, is greater individual liberty for for every American. And it isn't obvious to me that the disillusionment of the union um, or the bifurcation of the union um, <laughs> is necessarily going to lead to greater freedom for most Americans. I think the fact that the the kind of federal system that we have um, and the checks and balances create obstacles to some of the things that a place like California or New York might like to do mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but can't do because of the constraints that we've put upon them um, are very good for libertarians who reside in those states. It's a good thing, I think, on that. Um, yeah. And in the same respect, there are things that red states might like to prohibit um, that I might prefer. Um, and I think that the, the tension that's created by the union is probably a good thing on net. Um, in terms of like the way that we get to a freer um, America and the, the kind of fractious political battles that we're having now. I think to the extent that uh, uh, the national divorce isn't palatable to many people, it's probably because they have some sensibility about what that might look like in practice, that it might be ugly and odious, that at the moment, to the extent we're having these conflicts, like they're playing out in ways that are are violent and unsettling. And I do think that there is something very, um, very much worth preserving in terms of the prioritizing of sort of civility and having a culture of um, kind of political engagement where we prize certain norms. And I'm saying all of this is someone who very much believes in the, the kind of political project, the anarcho-capitalist political project, and that that would be an ideal, at least a better, more moral kind of sense, uh, system of government. But it's impossible for me not to acknowledge like all of the actual tangible benefits of the prevailing political order and not to have as a goal of my own, like trying to cultivate um, a, a kind of national politics and a, a civic culture that is more interested in engagement than disillusionment. Uh, disillusionment, and for that reason, you know, the sort of flight ninety three election <laughs> approach to politics in the context of the the kind of national divorce, um, you know, creating enough of a of a, a kind of schism that at some point things just kind of crack and people recognize that that's what they want. Like, I I don't know that that, that actually feels particularly good to, um, and at a minimum, um, I think we probably ought to have a more sophisticated conversation about whether or not that's likely to actually produce good results, um, versus worse results. Maybe just maybe, um, if things kind of remain as they are, but we're able to get, 
you know, greater access to school choice, like more free market oriented healthcare in general, um, and uh, uh, change the political discourse in ways that put the individual um, and their own rights at the center of our conversations and our considerations, that would actually lead to the best possible outcome. The, the kind of kind of out there idea or notion of a national divorce that maybe that shouldn't be the priority relative to those things. Yeah. And kind of any messages you're trying to sell at one time. Right. And matters. if you, if you read uh, Mises, you'll see that what he was very concerned about was this idea of conflict. It's why he always talked about peace because Conflict is the enemy of liberty, as he saw it. He mm-hmm. always wanted a peaceful world. He wanted people to be trusting of each other, to work together, because when you have conflict, you don't have liberty. People, yeah. people, when people don't trust each other, when they're fighting each other, you can't have um, safe property rights. Right. You can't. You can't have uh, genuine free exchange of goods and services. All of the things, all of the things libertarians care about, break down when we isolate ourselves and go into conflict mode. Like we're, yeah. hey, we're standing. You're our enemy. This is our, you know, territory here, and we're going to fight you. And you guys are the bad guys, and we're the good guys. All of that stuff, um, which increases conflict, is detrimental to liberty. And and I think it's why Mises thought of himself as a citizen of the world in a sense. That's how he tried to frame it. Like he's a citizen of the world. He wants the world to have what he called liberalism, uh, which we might think of as, as libertarianism. Well, I, I want to ask you, do you want to run for office? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> I, I've certainly thought about it. Um, at some point, maybe if the appropriate opportunity presented itself and if the circumstances were ideal, um, Certainly a couple of years ago, you know, when we were in the throes of the pandemic and I was trapped in a basement, like that sort of thing wasn't terribly interesting to me. But, you know, a couple of years from now um, or 10, um, when things are <laughs> predictable, uh, running for office, even if it's in a race that I'm not exactly sure I've got a great chance of winning, could be something that's worth doing um, if the if the conditions are right. Um, but I I think I want to do the thing for which I'm sort of best suited, um, both with respect to kind of my own specific talents and interests, but also with respect to what someone else might be able to bring to the table. Um, and it's entirely possible that I look out into the field and think for a particular office and in a particular race I've got. Of skills and competencies that I could bring to bear, and I could be valuable in that context. Um, and to that, to that, if that's the case, and I can persuade my wife, um, then you help, sure. Um, <laughs> circumstance, it's circumstance dependent. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I don't. Have, I'll say this: I don't have any burning desire to quote unquote serve in that capacity. I think. I think it's a really, it's hard. It's a hard job, as you well know. Um, and I think it takes a special kind of person to actually want to do that job. I'm happy to do other jobs. 
and happier to do other jobs. And I don't I don't know that I have the stomach for the kind of stuff that you tolerated um, working on Capitol Hill. I think you are, in that respect, a better man than me. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. So um, I was going to ask you about Jared Polis. And I don't know how much you know about him. He's the governor of Colorado. Yeah. I had him on um, this podcast in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I brought up, which I've always found interesting, is when you look back at our time in Congress, and I kept a scorecard of my colleagues, a libertarian scorecard, mm-hmm. as uh, as the – Chairman of the House Liberty Caucus, I kept tabs on all of my colleagues to see how libertarian they were. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me is someone like Jared Polis, who I think in libertarian circles, you know, some libertarians like him, others think he's terrible, others don't like him at all. But his score on my scorecard was 69%, which is a very high score for people who want to know, you know, about my scorecard, it was a very tough scorecard. Uh-huh. Like, like getting sixty nine percent is a high score. That's that put him at eighth place lifetime during my time in Congress. <laughs> so, with all of the members who came through, he got he was the eighth most libertarian member. Yeah, and I scored a I'm lot of. I'm not yeah. surprised to hear that at all. Yeah. I scored a lot of things. Yeah. Now, for comparison, and this is why I think it's interesting. Because I think of these three people, a lot of people, especially maybe right libertarians, would say Polis is the least libertarian. But I can tell you, my scorecard um, scored everything from you know economic issues to personal issues to to whatever might be a libertarian issue. I scored it, and uh, good evidence of this is the highest scorers on the scorecard were uh, me and Thomas Massey. Mm-hmm. And and that's a good indication that it makes sense as a scorecard. Like people know us, they know we're libertarian, um, and we're we're. I obviously had a hundred percent. Massey was at ninety seven percent. We disagreed on one or two things, but whatever the case, Polis had a sixty nine, and these next two people who I'm going to mention, I think, are often thought of as more libertarian. But I can tell you, based on my time with them, they're not. That's Tulsi Gabbard, who scored a 51% <laughs> compared to Polis' 69%. She was 49th place, which mm-hmm. is still pretty good. You know, there are hundreds of people serving in the House. <laughs> yeah. She was 49th. And then Ron DeSantis, who is also a friend of mine, um, you know, I served with him in the House Freedom Caucus, knew him pretty well, and, and generally liked the guy. But he scored 20%. 20%, and he was 264th. Mm-hmm. Now... What what does this tell you about people? I mean, I'm trying to figure out people's perceptions because if you asked a lot of Republicans, I'm sure they would tell you that DeSantis is the defender of individual rights, etc. Yeah, but true. but awesome. in but in practice, when I'm when I'm actually scoring their yeah. votes, you know, they're on the House floor and they're having to vote on things. His score is quite low, and I I would say like Gabbard has a pretty good score, even at fifty one percent. She's forty ninth in the house, mm-hmm. but DeSantis at twenty percent that's not a good score. Like it's you know maybe middle of the pack or even worse. Um, so what does this tell you about people and the way they think? That's that's what I'm trying to to get at. Like are people just biased in favor of what they know, or are they do they? 
Do people prefer myths to reality? Do they do they place rhetoric above practice, or is it that they're focused on one or two issues, and as long as the person satisfies them on those issues, they sort of extrapolate to other things. They say, well, I think DeSantis was good on this or that, therefore I think he must be good on this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a combination of those things. I mean, in in one respect, I suspect a bunch of people just kind of have a, a, a neat and tidy heuristic about Democrats and Republicans and a presumption that Republicans who often talk in the language of liberty and who talk about things like limited government, the presumption is perhaps that they are generally, perhaps even uniformly, going to be better than their Democratic um, opponents in any kind of head-to-head matchup. Um, And I think that, that to the extent that was true before, it is certainly less true today about Republicans that have kind of tilted in a far more populist direction um, post-Trump, um, during the Trump administration and certainly post-Trump as well. Um, but relatedly, I also think you're right about just there being particular issues that people are paying attention to. And at the moment, a lot of the culture war stuff has a tremendous amount of resonance. And I think it is probably fair to say that there are lots of libertarians who are have become at least kind of ardent culture warriors and who are perhaps willing to set aside certain kinds of philosophical commitments in service of obtaining what are viewed as victories in the culture war um, or obstructing particular projects that they see um, being directed by, say, folks on the left with respect to, like, education or something, which is something Ron DeSantis has has kind of made um, a a calling card of his, um, as has his assault on Disney, the dreaded Disney, and cartoons where characters of the same sex kiss one another or something, Um, although they're cartoons, so they don't actually have a sex, so it all seems a little silly to me. Um, you know, to the extent you prioritize those sorts of things, then, you know, maybe it seems like he's your guy. Um, but I I probably have uh, my own completely informal, unsophisticated um, <laughs> approach to scoring candidates would probably have a ranking um, that I suspect would probably be pretty close to yours. Um, and I'm not at all surprised by the way things shake out. Um, And I suspect, you know, it's entirely possible libertarians tend to pay a lot more attention to these things than other people, that if it ever came down to, say, a matchup, a dream matchup, let's say, between, say, DeSantis and Polis um, for, say, president of the United States or something, and libertarians were forced to choose because there was no LP candidate, perhaps, between that Democrat and Republican, that they would make an informed decision um, based on the kind of criteria that you laid out and not just a heuristic that they have um, in in the back of their minds. Yeah. I mean, I worry about this stuff because I saw how it played out during the Trump years where Mm -hmm. a lot of Trump's rhetoric, especially on war, you know, he's ending the wars, et cetera. And at the same time, it's the same time in reality, he's ramping up the wars, but, but people fell for it. And I guess one of the things that really frustrated me about that time is that, one of the reasons I got into politics was that I was sick of these people lying to us. I was mm-hmm. sick of people coming to me and telling me that they are doing X, Y, and Z. And then when I looked at their voting record, they weren't doing X, Y, and Z. 
they were saying they were doing it, but they weren't actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And I worry that today, more than ever, we are falling falling for these traps, that we are falling for the rhetoric, just as human beings, we're falling for the rhetoric more than ever. Maybe it has to do with social media, maybe it has to do with partisanship, that things are so polarized now that you are just inclined to believe someone who's on your side, who's owning the other side, um, just rhetorically, like, you know, this person really is against our enemies, so I'm going to like them, and I don't really care about the voter record. When when I was first starting out in Congress, people did look at scorecards, and they said, like, who who's doing well on, you know, Club for Growth scorecard or whatever? And then the Trump era came along, and all of a sudden the scorecards all disappeared. Nobody cared about scorecards. It was, um, could you do a video on Instagram slamming the left? Or, you know, that that was... That was what what mattered all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. This this seems to me to be really destructive to our politics in that, you know, we've moved so far away from caring about the actual things they do. And of course in, in Congress you have the problem too that they don't vote on things anymore. It's it's so top down that there's not even a legislative process really. So I don't know. What do you what do you think is happening? Do you feel optimistic or do you feel pessimistic? And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, we're both uh I assume you think of yourself as Gen X, right? You're the same age as me. Um or do you think of yourself as a millennial? I, I don't know how I fit. Um I know that I've been surrounded by a lot of millennials. Um and I, I have a bunch that work for me over at Freethink, um and younger as well. So I, I feel like I probably understand millennials better than I understand Gen X in some respects. But yeah, I don't know. I don't quite know how I fit. Yeah, so we're we're about the same age, but Yeah, it's close. Do you feel do you feel more hopeful today or less hopeful about politics? What I mean I, I think I think this is why like I'm not hopeful this, about politics in particular. Okay, well, this is why it's hard because you have the party saying things like national divorce, the Libertarian Party, and it's easy to to uh, be pessimistic and say, yeah, like you know, maybe just maybe this whole thing doesn't work. On the other <laughs> hand, there are many respects in which we are living in the most libertarian time of human history, without a doubt, and yeah. and yeah. so. Yeah, do you feel optimistic or or pessimistic? Um, I am uh, I am a determined optimist when it comes to you know, the future of the species and the possibilities for like human thriving and human progress for the pursuit and attainment of greater degrees of justice properly defined um and for expanding uh, our circles of concern so that the bonds of human fraternity are strengthened and that we imagine that a far greater diversity and share of the population are like members of our human family and that they deserve the same sort of respect and dignity um, that we all want for ourselves. I, I can't help but hope for that. Um, I think that there are lots of obstacles to those goals, um, perhaps more than I 
imagined there would be at this point, say five years ago. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly still optimistic, you know, whether or not those things will be arrived at through our politics, I think is another question entirely. And in, in truth, you know, cultivating a sense of real skepticism, not cynicism. I think there is a fundamental difference between the two. Um, those cynicism could be valuable and useful in some respects, but actual skepticism about what government can do and what government is good for is something that I hope um, more Americans were, will find their way to. And I think in many respects, the, the, the current circumstances, the whole horrible kind of inflationary pressures that people are find themselves contending with now, um, the difficult foreign policy situations that the country is navigating um, in, in rather ham-fisted ways, I think. Um, and just the kind of general uncertainty of the moment I think all of those are things that, if properly leveraged, could help inform a greater sense of skepticism about whether or not government is the solution to the most pressing and urgent problems in your life, whether or not government is going to deliver you know, better schooling to your children, or if the appropriate thing to, to focus on and to choose is, is freedom. Um, I think that there's every reason to believe that we could continue to make progress in those areas um, and that the, the parade of horribles that we've all been subjected to um, is something that, that could be kind of meaningfully teachable um, and that we can overcome the, the kind of bullshit culture war stuff that has taken center stage, at least with respect to kind of the political discourse. I don't think that most Americans are deeply invested in the culture war, culture war in the same way that most political elites are, um, or most people who think about politics a lot of the time are. Um, in my experience, you know, I have particular kinds of conversations with people on Twitter um, and very different conversations with people when I find myself on like college campus or something, um, or just in the supermarket um, or some other context, having conversations with people who are, say, less political, um, but are kind of concerned about the state of the country and do want to be in a better position to feed their, feed and clothe their families and to pursue a better life for themselves. Um, and I, I just I want to give those people hope in the right things and help them cultivate skepticism <laughs> in the right sort of things as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that you're right. A lot of people who are on Twitter, especially people who are involved in politics, who are active in politics, they have a tendency to think that the world is revolving around these cultural issues that they're talking about on Twitter. Um, you know, they saw a drag show somewhere in the country. <laughs> somewhere in the country, a drag show was was played on a video and. <laughs> This must be like the big issue in the whole country. And I really think of it as another um, type of sort of being blue-pilled in a sense. Like, you know, people like to talk about red-pilled and blue-pilled. It's another way of being sort of blue-pilled. You're not really seeing the world as it is. You're seeing it in this virtual reality that's on your phone where everyone is so caught up in what some person did halfway across the country in a city you don't live in. And the average person at home, if you walk in your neighborhood, they don't know anything about it. 
And that's hard for people to relate to who care about politics, who are involved in politics, who are young libertarian activists getting involved in the LP, that um, their friends and neighbors don't know about this stuff. And sometimes if you think that everyone is obsessed with the same things you're you're obsessed with, uh, it can really be a, a devastating strategy in politics. Like you can you can totally miss the boat on what's actually going on, what people care about at home. And and I saw that with so many of my colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so what do you think the the midterms are coming up? Um, <laughs> what do you what do you think about the midterms? What's What's going to happen? Did you think this um, abortion uh, ruling from the Supreme Court would have more of an impact on polling? It doesn't seem like it's had a big impact on polling. Um, are Republicans in the driver's seat? And is it is yeah. it just like Biden is just a, you know terrible in so many ways, and and as a result, Republicans are gonna are gonna make it back in, and and maybe even Trump. Like it's reviving Trump. I mean, the the circumstances seem to dictate. I mean, and by that I mean the the questionable economic conditions and the primarily that I suspect, um, and the general um, dissatisfaction with the Biden administration, the lack of sort of apparent competence on their part, um, or perhaps just their inability to navigate a particularly bad hand. Um, I think it's a combination of the two things. They've made some obvious bad decisions. Well, it also seems like Biden, anytime something comes up, he blames uh, someone else. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Right. And he it's might, wonderful. he might be, he might be right that it's not all his fault or whatever, but it seems Sometimes like, he's right. yeah, yeah. but, but <laughs> it seems it's like never a, all your fault. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it seems to me like it's a terrible messaging strategy oh, as sure. president to every day be tweeting about how it's Putin's fault or gas station's fault or yeah. like someone else's fault. Yeah, and it's also not producing results, which I think is the fundamental problem for the Biden administration. Um, and, and there's a very real sense in which I think Republicans ought to clean up in the midterms if they're just sufficiently sane. Um, but in so many cases, they seem content to field candidates who seem less than sane and who are less than serious. Like Herschel Walker in Georgia, for example, <laughs> that's a seat you guys ought to win. And perhaps you just didn't know about the, the myriad defects of Herschel Walker <laughs> as a candidate, but maybe you should have. And again, it's just like it's the, the the ridiculous state of affairs with respect to the two parties. Like I'm, I always find myself lamenting the fact that the LP isn't better better positioned to take advantage of this like insane political situation um, because, you know, folks just tend to vacillate between um, uh, one part, their, their kind of commitment to one party or the other based on who failed them most recently. Um, and it doesn't feel like folks are making an affirmative decision to support Republicans right now. To the extent they win, it feels as though there is kind of a repudiation of the incumbent regime in a they weren't taking things serious enough um, or achieving enough of the right kinds of outcomes. So Republicans get to win. And no, I'm not at all surprised uh, to address the question you asked about abortion, that abortion hasn't played a more kind of substantial role in the polling 
That's not to say that it isn't an important issue um, and that there aren't material concerns about it. But I mean, I think if we if we actually face facts here, the reality is that the places where that's going to be a very resident issue are places that Democrats already kind of control. And (laughs) those places are voting blue anyways. And most of those races are pretty well decided. Um, And I do think that there's probably a non-trivial percentage of the Democratic Party, Democratic Party supporters who appreciate the fact that Democrats have had many, 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 many years to secure federal protections for abortion. Um, and they didn't make a serious effort to do that. If anything, uh, I think a lot of abortion activists were kind of reaching for the moon and the stars with respect to these policies and pursuing policies that are probably a little more out of phase with what the average American is comfortable with. And the conversations I've had with people more recently um, in different contexts um, seem to be like revealing preferences for certain kinds of restrictions on abortion that perhaps didn't exist before. Like a lot of people are are fairly comfortable with the kind of changes um, that um, Youngkin is is talking about here in Virginia, uh, where I am now where they're talking about, you know, first trimester as opposed to second trimester, which importantly, most abortions happen in the first trimester. So again, if you're looking for federal abortion protections and you want them nationwide, getting something that limits it to first trimester or is principally interested in first trimester eight years ago, um, 12 years ago, is something you probably could have done, um, but you didn't do that. And as a result, you find yourself in the situation that you're in now. And it's not a function of a, a theocratic takeover of the Supreme Court. It's absurd. Um, it's a function of a, a poor political strategy on your part um, and being more interested in showboating and grandstanding than actually doing your job, which I think you're going to you're going to reap the whirlwind related to that. I think that it was promised that the Supreme Court justices will reap the whirlwind, but I think Democrats will probably reap the whirlwind. Yeah. So, what's your prediction on whether Trump comes back? Um, you know, I don't. I don't make predictions about that sort of thing anymore um, since he proved me wrong with respect to his ability to win the primary. So, I don't know. Um, but I will say that people who seem very, very confident that Trump is going to, if announced, kind of just uh, moonwalk his way into the Republican nomination um, are, it seems to me, a little too confident about that, given the way that Trump has kind of been flailing, I think, in terms of kind of just both his national um, popularity um, and the pretty substantial headwinds that have been kicked up by a lot of the kind of investigatory stuff that's taken place related to January 6th. Um, so I'm I'm less than optimistic about kind of the future prospects for Donald Trump, and I think DeSantis, for whatever other defects I might imagine he has, um, is probably kind of sufficiently Trumpy for people who really really like Trump without some of the negative baggage. Yeah, well, I know you've got to get going. You you are working all night. <laughs> you got other you got to do this you got to do something else you, well, I mean, you gotta, this, is, this is hardly work i love talking with you <laughs> you never stop working and i'm and i'm yeah i'm gonna go talk with uh with moynihan and welch because um, we've got <laughs> podcast stuff to do yeah so i don't want to keep you from that because uh, you know i can imagine you got to go another couple hours there or whatever so 
You, do you ever lose your voice? You, you from or you get you get used to it, <laughs> so have. your voice, yeah. But um, I'm fortunate in that I get to talk to people who also like to talk. Uh, <laughs> so they 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 share a lot of the burden with me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'm good. I think I I think I've got another couple rounds in me, and I'm gonna. <laughs> smoke something and drink something and uh, and um it'll make it even more enjoyable so. <laughs> yeah well you you have a good time doing that i i really appreciate that you came on today um, um, yeah, i'm always really really glad when we get a chance to to break bread with one another and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get to do it again rather soon yeah i'm looking forward to it all right camille foster thanks all right thanks and thanks Take to care. everybody listening already bye bye